Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Faber. Welcome back to the pastor's office. It's August the 7th, 2022. First Sunday in August, the eighth month of the year. You know why I'm excited about it? Because just two days ago, my mother turned 89 years young. I talk about my mom and my dad a lot on the show. And and one thing I can tell you is that I feel I have the greatest parents this side of heaven. They have taught me how to be a good man, how to be a good person. Uh, they introduced me to Jesus Christ. Man, I'm, I'm just thankful for my parents. Uh, man, I wish I could have one more conversation with my dad. Uh, my dad passed from this, this labor November the 8th, 2014, it's a day I'll always remember, Uh, but my mother is still here. She's still smiling. She's still talking to us. And even though she's battling Alzheimer's, uh, she still has wisdom to share. I want to encourage each and every one of you, as I do quite often, never take a day for granted when it comes to your loved ones. Tell them you love them. Celebrate them just because somebody's been good to you. Appreciate them. We got an opportunity this week to appreciate mom, and I try to appreciate her every day. But I had to say here publicly on Philly's Favor, 100.7 FM, happy birthday, Eunice Mason. Happy 89th birthday, and thank you for being the absolute best mom to me to Aaron and to Luke we love you and by the way you're pretty awesome grandmother too you know what my dad used to say about grandpa grandchildren he used to say I wish grandchildren came first now I don't know how that made me feel I don't know how it made me feel but he had a great affinity for grandchildren because he could love them up spoil them and then give them back to their parents anyway mom Happy, happy, happy birthday. Uh, We're going to be putting some shows in the can here over the next week or so because uh, I will be departing on August the 12th for my annual mission trip to Ghana. As you know, uh, we have done a lot of work in Ghana, building a technical school through the fraternity, uh, refurbishing and rehabilitating a preschool in Sahum for the young people there, and it's named the Reverend Lee Mason Jr. Preschool. And then last year, we put in a computer lab at another school, a middle school, that they so graciously named after my mother. So we are excited to go back over. This year, we're taking school supplies. We're going to be making financial contributions. Uh, So we're going to put some shows in the can Uh, maybe play a couple best of shows uh, while we're gone for two Sundays. But I want you to keep us in prayer. This is something we've been doing since 2016. And if God is willing, we'll continue to do it every year as long as we can to be a blessing to the communities that we serve over in the motherland. So this will be our final show. That is live and ready to go, live to tape, we'll say. Uh, But we will be running some best ofs uh, as we go forward. Listen, we've got a great topic that we want to discuss in our first segment today. We have a great guest. He's just released a book. It's called After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream 
and blew up our politics and how to fix it. This best-selling author, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, one of the national columnists for the Philadelphia Inquirer. We want to welcome into the pastor's office this Sunday afternoon, author Will Bunch. Mr. Bunch, welcome into the pastor's office. Come on in and take a seat. Reverend Mason, it's such an honor to be with you today. I really appreciate it. Well, listen, we're excited to have you here with us in the pastor's office for a topic that, you know what, it is at the forefront of many of our minds because one of the things we hear on the news constantly, uh, one of the things that you hear from people who have been to school and have come out of school is how do we eliminate student debt? And one of the things that has been stifling to a generation is student debt. You got the degree, but you also acquired the debt and you end up fighting against this debt for a good portion of your adult life. But then there are those who, and we'll get into this, were left behind, Mm -hmm. didn't get the opportunity to get that education. Then there are those that believe that the education is no longer viable, valid, or worthy of time and attention. It's divided our politics. We've got one side that says, yes, let's eliminate. We've got another side that says, no, you can't eliminate student debt. Higher education has caused a great debate in our society. So I'm glad to have you on so we can kind of Peel back the onion and have a little bit of discussion about where we are and how we got to this point. First and foremost, tell me, why did this become an issue that you wanted to write about? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, really, it's one of the oldest stories around, which is this was a simple case of journalistic curiosity, because I've been covering politics in America for 40 years. And there, there came a time, I guess it was about maybe 15 years ago, where I was just seeing things out there that I didn't really understand and I wanted to understand better for myself. And um, I, I saw all this anger on the, uh, on the political right side of the uh, country. And what fascinated me was, you know, a lot of, a lot of these people in the working class, especially the white working class, you know, were people who suffered through, you know, factory closings and jobs being outsourced to Mexico and China. And, you know, on, on that level, and I, I know there's many issues involved, but in that particular area, I thought they had a right to be angry, but they, they weren't angry at the, you know, CEOs who were moving the jobs, you know, and who were making so many, uh, you know, 450 times more than what their workers were making. That, that wasn't the source of their anger. Their, their anger instead was directed towards professionals, managers, you know, people who were journalists, people who, people who were college professors, uh, actors, Hollywood movie stars, people like that. And uh, so, so I, I was fascinated by that, and I wanted to understand why. And, you know, the more I listened, uh, you know, I, I, even, even though I'm a person with a progressive mindset, but, uh, you know, I made myself listen to some of these radio shows, like, like Rush Limbaugh, for example, um, to understand kind of what the motivations were. And, you know, I, I realized there was all this resentment around college and higher education. And, and while, while, I was, while I was pondering this, uh, you know, we were seeing every election cycle more and more the Democrats were becoming the party of people with college degrees, whereas the Republicans were more and more becoming the party of uh, people who didn't have diplomas. And this was becoming the big fault line in American politics. And I figured that you couldn't really explain what was causing this division without explaining what has happened to college and why, why our college um, setup, for want of a better term, that we have in this country uh, has left so many people so angry and frustrated. So that's, so that's what I decided to investigate. So when we look at your book, you know, you start off by talking about the post-World War II society and, and, and the fact that many after World War II made college the ultimate goal to receive that baccalaureate degree 
uh, and to provide for their families and become productive members of society. Because we know prior to World War II, back in the early part of the century, you know, families grew large so that the kids could go out and work in the field and, and on the farms. And, and a college degree was not necessarily the end goal. Talk to us a little bit about that post-World War II society. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. Very few people went to college in, in the early 1940s. Um, only about 5% of the population had a bachelor's degree. And, in fact, the majority of people didn't even graduate high school at that time. So going to college was a big change. But since World War II, there's really two basic questions we've been debating. One is, what is college for? And the other is, whose responsibility is it to pay for, pay for it? And what you saw in 1944, right as World War II was ending, was this fascinating experiment, uh, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, the, the GI Bill, which was the uh, bill that gave returning veterans from World War II an opportunity to go to college for free, which was something the government had never done before. So for this, for this sliver of the population, and it was a sliver, you know, it was returning veterans who were overwhelmingly male, 97%, and and the program was constructed in such a way that that uh, black people didn't have the same opportunities as, as, as white kids did, which was a big black mark on the program. But but, but that having been said, it, you know, the program did show that people from the middle class did well when they were given a chance to get a college education and that they could move up, that they could make a better life for themselves, that instead of working in a factory or working in the fields, that they could, you know, get a, get a job where they used use their brain instead of their hands. And that was like a desirable thing to a lot of people. And this kind of ushered in the golden age of college, which lasted for about 25 years, where if you wanted to go to a state university, tuition was incredibly low. In some places like uh, City University of New York or the University of California were actually tuition-free. They had no tuition, just a, just a handful of fees, and that was it to go to college. And, you know, enrollment skyrocketed. You know, it went up about sixfold during those years up until like the late 1960s. And campuses expanded. You started seeing these high-rise dorms going up to house all these students. And colleges hired tens of thousands of new professors. And uh, it was an exciting time. It was the golden age of college. And, and the, reason, the reason that uh, it was a golden age of college was because it was largely a, it was largely a public good. You know, individuals paid very little money to, to have the opportunity to go to college. And there were just a lot of benefits to that system, but it didn't last. Well, you're listening to Philly's Favor, 100.7 FM, 99.5 HD3. We're talking to author Will Bunch, who just released this past Tuesday. Congratulations, by the way. Um, after the ivory tower falls, uh, how college broke the American dream and blew up our politics and how to fix it. Now, now, now that's where I wanted to just jump in and what happened? Because you're right. It was as you do the history, as you go through the history, as you look at what college was. I guess you call it the halcyon days, right? Uh, yeah. It was for the greater good. It was so that people could come out and, as I said earlier, be productive members of society. I know folk in my generation going forward uh, who are paying uh, five figures a year per semester want to understand how we got to this point. Well, a couple a couple things happened, and one thing, not a lot of people know about this, and, and that's why something I really wanted to highlight in the book is there was a political backlash that was a huge part of this. You know, I mean, as you know, the 1960s, kids were encouraged to come to campus and think about big ideas, you know, and get, get a liberal education with the idea of becoming better citizens. And there was a lot, you know, people were studying the humanities, they were studying literature, they were studying sociology, they were studying philosophy, subjects like that. And there was a lively culture around celebrating democracy and, and you know, public morals and, and those things. Well, in the 1960s, you know, students really focused on hypocr hypocrisy here in American society. They, you know, they really drilled in on the hypocrisy of you know, racial apartheid in, in, in the Deep South and, you know, the violence that was taking place against people who were fighting for the right to vote or for civil rights. Uh, you know, that, that electrified kids on college campuses, first, first, at the HB, first at the HBCUs, but, you know, later on, it, it, even at predominantly white campuses. And 
you know, this kind of flowed directly into what became widespread opposition to the Vietnam War. And you had a backlash. You had a backlash from the establishment, from conservative elements in this country who didn't like the protests they were seeing on college. Uh, you know, the, the avatar of this whole movement turned out to be Ronald Reagan. He, he basically was, you know, he was an actor who got elected governor of California in 1966. And his main issue was that he was going to clean up the campus protests at Berkeley and some of these other universities in California. And, you know, the new philosophy was that education, higher education anyway, shouldn't be a public good. That, uh, you know, it wasn't the government's responsibility to, in Reagan's word, you know, finance your intellectual curiosity that, you know, if you wanted to enter the workforce with this degree, that's fine, but you're going to have to pay for it. And, you know, if it's, if it's too expensive up front, we'll allow you to borrow the money and pay the loans back against your future earnings because that's, that's capitalism. You're making an investment in yourself. Rather than society, the taxpayers making an investment in our young people. Now it's you, you and your family are supposed to make that investment. And, uh, you know, this coincided with a couple things. One, you know, the, the economy started getting worse and, and, uh, in the 1970s and, and costs did go up. Intuition started to rise for those reasons as well, as well as the lack of, you know, government support that we were starting to see. And uh, th- this whole idea of a credential, you know, right at the time the college started getting more and more expensive and wasn't, wasn't free anymore and it wasn't, wasn't a public good right at that time was when job recruiters started demanding college diplomas for more and more types of jobs. And so young people were in a bind that they had to get this diploma to not not even just get ahead. I mean, you had to get a college degree now just to stay in the middle class to kind of cling to where you you and your family already were. And you couldn't do that without college, which was more expensive. And for many families, you couldn't do college without taking out substantial loans. So, so I'm clear on the fact that Reagan was the pivot point here in the change. And, and, and you know, it's interesting because until... Until you bring this out in your book, I don't think a lot of people really understand that fact. Uh, But here's what I'm trying to tie with with, uh, him being the pivot point and with college becoming, uh, I guess, a political issue because of what was happening on the campuses. How does that correlate with tuition rise? Because really, that's the one thing that's keeping college out of reach for a lot of young people today is the cost. How did that correlate with tuition rise? Well, in a couple of ways. One, one is pretty direct, which is if you go back historically, taxpayers, you know, through our state legislatures, just funded more of the bill for people to attend public universities. Okay. So Pennsylvania is like is a remarkable example of that. If you look at Pennsylvania, as recently as like the 1980s, the taxpayers of Pennsylvania paid for 75% of the cost of students to attend our, our public universities like, you know, Westchester University or Millersville or, or Kutztown, uh, schools like that. Today, it's only 25%. So who makes up the difference? It's, now, it's, now it's the individual student who's paying the 75%. And, uh, and you know, and so I've, I've, I've spoken with, with young people who went to schools like Kutztown who, who owe hundred thousand dollars in one case. I, I I know another kid who's in the book who, a young person who in the book who uh, didn't even get his degree but still has forty thousand dollars in debt for attending Kutztown. So the lack of state support is part of it. The the other thing, frankly, is you know, and it was really more the private elite institutions that took the lead on this. But colleges realized, you know, market marketing to try and compete for students became more sophisticated, and colleges realized that. They could compete for kids based on prestige that they, you know, rather than price that they found out that a lot of families wanted like a prestige college experience for their kid and they weren't really shopping for the best bargain necessarily. And, you know, so you, you kind of saw this arms race among schools to build these amenities for kids, you know, lazy rivers where they can go floating around the, the campus on a raft or, or, uh, rock climbing walls or, or just state-of-the-art dorms where every room has a flat-screen TV and food courts where, uh, you know, kids can get everything up to, like, a steak dinner. Um, but all these things cost money. And, you know, they found, I, I guess, I guess helped with, helped with the, 
helped with the availability of student loans, they found that a lot of families would pay for this. So I graduated high school in 1990 uh, from Abington High School right outside of Philadelphia. I accepted an offer to go to Millersville uh, University to um, be one of their student-athletes. But after I signed and accepted, I ended up at Norfolk State University in Norfolk, Virginia. I'll tell you why. That's an HBCU, right? Absolutely. Norfolk State is an HBCU founded in 1935. Um, but wow. I'll tell you exactly what happened. Uh, at Millersville, uh, I was going, I believe, gosh, I can't remember what the tuition was. Let's say it was 10000 So between Pell Grant's, between student loans and between a partial scholarship from football, uh, my parents still were ending up coming out of pocket uh, about $3,500 a year, somewhere thereabout. Then you add on, you know, all the other expenses. Uh, But at Norfolk State, they called me up. The tuition, I'll never forget it, it was $9,000 per year. Uh, And they called up and offered a full scholarship. Well, after talking to my parents, after talking to my counselors, et cetera, et cetera, I made the decision, and thank, I'm thankful to God I did now today, but I made the decision solely based on expense. Solely. Well, that was a wise decision. Now, not, you know, not everybody does that. Um, you know, some, some kids are determined to go to a school like, you know, take New York University, for example. It's in, it's in the heart of Manhattan, and it's a really glamorous place to go to school. And, you know, some... Some kids are determined to go there, even even if they don't get very much financial aid. But, you know, I, I mean, the other thing I would say, I mean, it, as a resident of Pennsylvania and, uh, you know, as a very bright person and somebody who also had other talents like the, you know, athletic ability, you know, the, the, the fact that the, the fact that they still wanted you, your, your family to pay $3,500 to attend this public university, I, I, I don't think that's right. You know, I think I, I think a public education like that should be, you know, maybe there's some fees and stuff, but it should be close to free, which is, again, how, how it was, you know, 50 or 60 years ago. K-12 K through 12 education in this country is, is something that we all pay for through our property taxes, and, and we all agree that that's something that's a public responsibility. We, we want all our kids to, to be in school, and at least until they're 18 years old. But times have changed, so people need... Today, people need education beyond age 18. And when I I say education, um, I mean, for a lot of people, I mean college. But for some people, I'm talking maybe about trade school or, you know, getting getting a year or two worth of certificates in IT or some other field where maybe you don't need need a bachelor's degree uh, or internships where you can learn to do a certain job, you know, like – you know, landscaping or whatever. Um, so let me ask you this. Uh, you know, let me ask you this, not to interrupt you, but I know we have limited time with you. Uh, and I want to get to the point of your book, which is how to fix it. But but before I get there, let me share this. So now to I went to school, I went to Norfolk State 1990 to 1995. Um, and again, tuition was around $9,000 a year. Tuition at Norfolk State now for an out-of-state student is over $25,000. Wow. Twenty Over twenty five. Thousand dollars, and so so, and 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 I've seen those same type of increases uh, uh, in in state funded and, and, and public and private schools all across the country. Now leaving our young people who have to take out more loans to come out of school with basically what's tantamount to an actual home mortgage when it comes to paying back their loans. This has clearly become a political issue. As a matter of fact, Biden ran, uh, one, of, one, of, one of his uh, campaign promises was the elimination of student debt. Bernie, he was complete elimination of student debt. Biden hemmed and hawed. You know, he, he, he played it down the middle. But Bernie was complete elimination of student debt. What's your belief? Do you believe we need to eliminate student debt? Let's, let's talk about that. And then... With this political lightning rod that is higher education, how do we fix this system, get people the education they need, but 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 prevent them from leaving school with 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 crippling debt? That's a great question. I mean, first of all, I, I do think there should be substantial, if not total, debt relief. You know, that I think I think we have a couple generations now that have been basically sold a bill of goods that they weren't given they weren't given good advice from their elders you know in terms of how they were you know how much they should borrow and what 
what could possibly happen on the other end and uh and, and about the value of it, of an education you know i think uh and i think a, a real flashpoint for all of this is these for profit colleges that sprang up you know in the in the 90s and 2000s that had kids maxing out on loans for degrees that weren't necessarily worth that much and and that's that's a substantial part of the problem and so so i i think i think there was just fundamental unfairness baked into the system and i think the the way to fix unfairness is is to is to forgive these debts the problem and, and this gets to the second part the problem is if you just do that and if you do nothing else you've got a you've got a class of freshmen starting this month or, or this fall right. um the tuition isn't going down, so they're still going to have to borrow money, and you're going to be starting this whole cycle all over again, which is just insane. You know, if we we need to, you know, I mean, I realize at this point it's like turning a battleship around, right? But we we need to have a serious conversation in this country about what what are our priorities. You know, I mean, we spend more than the, the next ten nations after us in, on the military, and. Is, is the real threat to this country another Pearl Harbor, or is the real threat another January 6th, which was kind of rooted in, in ignorance from, from people who, you know, were less educated than they should be and, and were prone to conspiracy theories or, or prone to kind of authoritarian leaders like Donald Trump? Um, you know, uh, you know how, how much are we going to make education a priority? Because, you know, I mean, there are there are ways to... Readjust, readjust the imbalance in our society. Um, and, and Bernie Sanders, like you said, and Elizabeth Warren have proposed ways to do this. Whether whether it's a tax on financial tra- transactions, or tra- what, what Bernie has proposed, or or whether it's a wealth tax that Elizabeth Warren supported. But I mean, these these are radical ideas. But you know, I think we need radical change so that so that going to college or going to trade school will be viewed like like going to k through twelve education is now that it's just something everybody does and it's 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 society's responsibility i mean i think I think we need to make that change um uh just real quickly one other idea I push in the book is the idea of giving eighteen year olds a, a government funded gap year where they could go off and do national service for a year you know co- conservation projects or working working in underprivileged communities um you know one one this would relieve some of the pressure on our 18 year olds to 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 make these big life decisions you know that they can have another year to learn more about themselves and what they'd like to do and their aptitude and and, and figure out where they're headed next and, and, and the other thing about a program like that is it would bring people together right i mean you know we're, we're we're all worried right now that America's on the brink of a civil war because people can't get along can't get along with each other and to me maybe maybe the road back starts with bringing people from different communities where people from north philadelphia and and people from you know youngstown ohio or or out out in the forest together working on a project and and realizing what they have in common instead of what they have differently so uh, so I, I mean i mean these are these are big changes but i would like to see big changes because i think right now that the system we have is really failing our young people wow this is a great topic man i wish we had more time to dig <laughs> deeper into this um but i want to let all of our listeners know uh that you can now get the book that really explores this topic uh after the ivory tower falls how college broke the american dream blew up our politics and how to fix it. we got to fix this. I know for one, I've got two young people. Uh, I have two sons, uh, uh, Will, uh, age 15 and age 11. And and notice I said those numbers, age 15 and age 11. Can I tell you why they're four years apart? (laughs) Because I didn't want two kids in college at the same time. (laughs) <laughs> because I knew of the expense. I st- listen, I told I told my wife at the, at the time the, our kids are going to be 4 years apart. I don't because I understood the expense burden and I always said this, if my kids are are C plus students, they don't play any sports, they're not in any extracurriculars, guess what? We're going to have to foot that bill. So 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 there's probably a lot of folk making decisions. You know, my wife and I we did not plan that way. So so my kids were uh overlapped for two years in college and and i got to tell you it was rough so uh 
I think I think you're on the right track because uh, it's hard. You know, I mean, it's hard enough to send one kid to college, but you know, sending two kids to college at the same time in, in, in this day and age. I mean, for me, I just like worked on the weekends, you know, doing freelance writing for other clients and, and anything to bring in a few extra dollars because, it, you know, if, if you want your kids to stay in the middle class, that's what you got to do got to do in this country. That's right. That's right. Well, listen, I want everybody to go out and grab this book. Grab it, grab it, grab it. We're here talking to its author, Will Bunch, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. Will, before you go, tell our listeners where they can go to get your book. Um, well, it's available at, at you know major sites like Amazon.com uh, and uh, BarnesandNoble.com. Or, or you can support your local neighborhood bookstore, which I would encourage people to do. Uh, or, or also, I should tell you, you tell you, you can listen to it on on Audible. If you'd rather just listen to it on your phone, or or you can download it on on a Kindle device and and uh, and read it that way electronically. Author Will Bunch, national columnist, Philadelphia Inquirer, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for providing us with some great, great research on this very important topic uh, to our country. Thank you for coming in the pastor's office today, and we wish you all the great success with your book. Reverend Mason, thank you so much for inviting me in. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. And we'll be right back after these commercial messages. Hey, Philly's favorite listeners, it's Pastor Jonathan Mason, and I want to welcome you back to another edition of the Pastor's Office. We're going to be talking about something very important. Let me start off by sharing this. My son Jackson uh, just turned 12 years old on August the 3rd. And so, of course, when I asked Jackson what he wanted for his birthday— uh, he, you know, he'll tell his mom, you know, he wants some, uh, Pokemon cards and, uh, you know, some, uh, grease cards or, you know, you know, the little stuff. Uh, but when he comes to me and I say, son, what do you want? You know what he tells me? He says, dad, I want to go to Disney world. I said, wait a minute, man, you didn't win the Super Bowl. Well, what, what, what is this Disney world? But you know what? We have not been since I believe he was about six years old. Uh, and so he's asked to go to Disney World. Let me tell you what's on his agenda, because this kid has put an agenda together. Uh, he wants to go to Magic Kingdom. He wants to go to Epcot. He wants to go to Hollywood Studios. And he wants to go to SeaWorld. Why am I sharing this with you? Other than the fact that I'm out a lot of money, and I really would appreciate it if you guys support our advertisers, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because SeaWorld is on his list. Now, I remember going to SeaWorld when I was a child. My dad took us to see Orca and all the animals. But the reason why SeaWorld is on my mind right now is because SeaWorld owns Sesame Place. Now, you know, our studios are located in the Frankfurt section of Philadelphia. When you get off on the turnpike, that's exit six on the New Jersey turnpike. But you know what's up in Langhorne, about 15 minutes from, from our location? It's Sesame Place. I've taken children from our church to Sesame Place. I've taken my children to Sesame Place. Sesame Place has been around for a long time and it's been a part of the lives of young people in this area for a mighty long time. And it was considered a safe place. It was considered a great place to take your children when you had some free time during the summer on the weekend. Church picnic. Just a few weeks ago, back in July. A video went viral. And when people say a Sesame Place video is going viral, what, what, what happened? You know, you know, you see a lot of things on, on uh, World Star Hip Hop and other places. What, did the characters get into a fight? What, 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 why is Sesame Place going viral? I watched the video. And I saw little Skylar and little Nyla standing excitedly on a parade route. 
waiting for Rosita, this character. I gotta be honest with you, I've never heard of this character before. I don't know who this character is, but that's okay. I've, I've done my research, I got it. This character's coming down, high-fiving everybody along the line. Yeah, you know, everybody's excited. And then when the character gets to Skylar and Nyla, character just waves his hand no and walks past them. The kids turn around and look like, what, 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 what happened here? What happened? Well, you know what? Kudos to the parent. Kudos to their mom and aunt. Because they did not take this snub lying down. She asked to see the management. Didn't get a chance to see management. You know what? I can't see management. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get some attorneys involved. Because when you look at the video, it certainly looks like the character was high-fiving all of the white children and then snubbed the two little black girls. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, There are a couple of attorneys that have taken this case on. Uh, I had a press conference last week. Uh, they want they want justice. They want to bring attention to this matter. And, and let's talk about it. We're going to bring in attorney Biavri Lamar and a young man that I know fairly well. I'll tell you about it in a second. But you know, I'll tell you now, I always tell you I'm part of the greatest fraternity in all the history of the land, right? I share with you I've had the opportunity to serve that fraternity uh, as its international president from 2013 to 2017. As a matter of fact, last week we talked about the fact that our sister organization, the Zetas, were here for their boule right here in Philadelphia. And uh, how we had an opportunity to introduce the Grand at the opening ceremony, their international president. Well, this young man who is an attorney on this case, I've known him for years. I've watched him grow and develop and become an amazing man. He's now part of representing this family. His name is Hamid Sayer. So glad to have both of them on the show. Attorney Lamar, Attorney Sayer, come on into the pastor's office. I think my introduction was long enough. I need you to talk now. Come on in and have a seat. <laughs> so, so, gentlemen, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules. Uh, we certainly want to talk about what happened to Skylar and Nyla. Uh, uh, first of all, before we go into any questions, did I set up the story correctly? Did, did I share with our listeners exactly what happened? Because if I didn't, please feel free to add to that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that that was a really good recitation of the outrage that exists across this country right now. Now, now, now do me a favor, Attorney Lamar, because I said it felt like the, the young people were, were, were snubbed. All the white people got their hand, you know, got the high fives, got the warm greeting. The two little black children that, that have their hands, one of them had their hands extended. Mm-hmm. Character walked right past them. Talk to me when, when you had the first interaction with, with mom. Uh, who brought this to everybody's attention. Talk to me about what she said, how she was feeling, and how the children were feeling. Well, I mean, as you as you would expect, I mean, she was heartbroken. I mean, you know, this was a moment. You know, first, I think it's important to note that when parents take their children out to Sesame Place, you know, you're paying for an experience. You know, this is a moment that a lot of these kids look forward to. Um, and the tickets ain't cheap. You know, right. I want to just put that out there right away. You know, the tickets are not cheap. Of course, when you make it to the to the theme park, uh, the food, the beverages, the toys, you know, none of these things are, are cheap. So it's definitely uh, something that the parents, you know, take take very seriously. As you can see in that video, um, you know, I actually had an opportunity to see the video before getting the phone call. And I was outraged when I when I first seen it. Um, but to hear her passion. Um, to hear how she talked about that the character Rosita was actually one of her favorite characters. And I think that's evidenced by when you look at that video um, with the children both, as you mentioned, having their arms extended. You know, this they were waiting for this moment. In fact, you know, it's not by, it's not happenstance that the mother started recording at that very moment. She knew of her, her niece and her and her daughter's fondness of this character so she started recording so that to ensure she captures that special moment and as the world saw reverend you know it's it was everything short of 
you know, a situation that um, they could have expected. Um, this was a devastating moment. This was heartbreaking. You know, these little girls have not been the same ever since. So, you know, again, as you mentioned, Sesame Place, which is widely known to be a safe place, a happy place. It was everything short of that, you know, a couple weeks ago. So she asked to see management. They would not put her in touch with management. She gets in touch with attorneys. Talk to us about, uh, attorney uh, Sahir, talk to us about the response that came from Sesame Place. Was it the type of response that said, you know what, yeah, we see it, we messed up, and we need to do something to correct this, or or was it quite the opposite? Talk to us about the initial response that came back. Yeah, the initial response uh, that uh, Sesame Place provided was more like fuel to the fire. You know, they, they had the opportunity to provide a very quick, succinct answer that says that the event that you saw was wrong. We are addressing the employee to make sure that everybody who comes to Sesame Place has an enjoyable experience, period. They could have said that, but instead they made excuses. And the an excuse was, was ridiculous, saying that you know, even though we have children coming to our park, you know, we have equipment that our employees wear that makes it hard for them to see children sometimes. And, you know, the world uh, rejected that answer. And then when further video came out that showed that, oh, on that parade route, another kid was was, uh, ignored. They then changed the tune again. So uh, the response was was unacceptable. It it made uh, the situation worse than when it had to be. And in in reality, it showed the the culture of the company that is an issue not at the uh, street performer level, uh, but it goes up to management and further. Here's my question, because in my research, I, I have not yet seen, was there any discipline? Because let's uh, that, that other incident that you talk about was with the same character. Now, we don't know if the same person was underneath the outfit, or at least I don't know. You guys can give me clarity. But has there been any discipline against the employee that hurt these two little children? Well, I'll say that we have not, we have no knowledge whatsoever as to any discipline that is imposed by that character at this point. And again, that adds to the outrage. You know, we would expect in the first initial statement that, you know, as Attorney Sayer said, they didn't say, hey, we're investigating this matter. We take these type of allegations seriously. We didn't even get that, you know. So as it relates to discipline, we are completely in the blind at this point. We don't even know the identity or the gender of this individual. I mean, it's very easy. You know, this individual could easily be Rosita one day and be Elmo the next day. Right. I mean, so, again, this, there's a threat out there to patrons of Sesame Place that they don't even know who this individual is. So, again, it's, it's concerning that the company has not even came forward publicly and, um, you know, addressed that issue. And and even after all of the publicity, they've not softened their position. I did see where oh, we're going to do some sensitivity training and, you know, we're going to talk to our staff. But they've really not opened up the lines of communication with you and the family to to other than offering them more tickets and another experience at Sesame Place. You know, as it, as it relates to this diversity training and so forth, I think it's important to note that that didn't happen until after Sesame Workshop, which is an affiliate company of the SeaWorld brand, until they, you know, said, hey, you you know, we license these characters to you. We can clearly see what the world saw in that nine-second video, that this was a racist act. You guys need to, to do something about it. It was only until they started getting that type of pressure before we seen the second statement that started talking about bias, um, you know, training and so forth. And I think it's also important to know, as attorneys, Sayer mentioned earlier that initially they tried to justify such action by the costume. Oh, you know, you can't see in these costumes and so forth. Well, it begs the question that if it's the costume and you just simply didn't see these two, you know, young African-American girls, then why do you need bias training? Which story are we going with? Are we going with you just didn't see the kids or are you going with that there really truly is an issue there? So, again, it's just this kind of this dance that they're playing. 
And that's why, you know, when you see three different statements issued within a five-day period, it's very hard to take any of them seriously and to actually, you know, accept any of which to be authentic and genuine. You're listening to Philly's Favorite 100.7 FM and 99.5 HD3. We're talking to attorney Biavri Lamar and attorney Hamid Sahir. They are representing the family of little Skylar and little Nyla, uh, the two young ladies who had their arms outreached to, to embrace and say hello to the character Rosita at Sesame Place in Langhorn, PA. The video went viral where the character just walked right past them after high-fiving all of the little white children that were around them. And we're digging into this case. Now, I noticed uh, at your press conference that other civil rights organizations have gotten involved. I saw that Until Freedom, uh, one of the leaders of, one of the founders of which, my good friend Tamika Mallory, I saw that Reverend Jackson from Rainbow Push has authored a letter. So it sounds to me like the civil rights leadership uh, has coalesced around you. And of course, Attorney Ben Crump is uh, is involved in this case. But it sounds like they have uh, coalesced around you to help bring attention to this, and then after that, a lawsuit? Uh, what is the desired result? Talk to me a little bit about that. There's a couple things. So with the uh, lawsuit that's been, been filed, that is a separate effort uh, by uh, another law firm that, that we're not in association with, uh, representing uh, other uh, families who uh, claim to have similar situations to happen to them as a uh, scholar and, and Nyla. But as in as in our efforts of wanting to see change within, because, you know, oftentimes we've seen in the past where a company has been caught doing, uh, doing something wrong, not in the best practices, and, you know, they say they're going to do something about it, and they may give the appearance of doing something about it, but once the cameras go away, they go back to their ordinary uh, program. And we want to see a change uh, within SeaWorld. Uh, uh, we want them to become a better company that's going to be to have less likelihood of having a racial discrimination at the park, have a, a park or a company that is that has African-American vendors, has African-Americans on their board of directors, has African-Americans in leadership in the company, especially if you're going to be accepting our dollars. Uh, we need to have our dollars be, be shown uh, within the company. And that is where bringing in uh, organizations as NAACP, a Rainbow Push, Until Freedom, Congressional Black Caucus, uh, to show, to let SeaWorld uh, know, not just SeaWorld, but other uh, similarly situated companies know that we, you all need to make effort, real effort, real change within your company, to eradicate racial discrimination in any way, shape, or form. And and so talk to me about timeline. Um, do we believe that, or do you believe, uh, as two attorneys working on this effort, uh, that you're going to see movement uh, soon, or do you think that the issue is going to continue to have to be forced in order to bring them to the table? Because I saw in Reverend Jackson's letter, you know, that he, you know, he's pushing. You guys need to sit down at the table and have a meeting with us. Uh, what type of responses have you gotten so far? Well, I'll say that SeaWorld has publicly said, you know, they're willing to sit down with, you know, organizations and so forth. Um, you know, we're waiting to try to uh, work on the specific details in that happening. Um, again, I think this issue, as, as you mentioned, goes well beyond Skylar and Nyla. Um, as we've seen from, you know, many of the videos that have also gone viral, but this is an issue that didn't just start yesterday. You know, some of these videos go back months and years back even. So again, this, um, you know, we're happy that they at least have stated that they would meet with these organizations. Of course, you know, we want to see them actually do so. Um, and then also to make sure that upon doing so, it's not just to save face, that there's actual real dialogue about meaningful change. Um, specifically, you know, we want to see, you know, protocols changed. I mean, we could start off with the termination of this individual. I mean, there's a no tolerance policy that's necessitated in these type of examples. Um, in addition to that, I think it's also important that you have more diversity uh, within their corporate structure. Uh, you know, when you start seeing these these 
these blatant fails as it relates to them issuing these statements. Um, as Attorney Sire mentioned, you know, again, that can also be cured with, with the diversity and accepting responsibility. Uh, so, again, we want to see meaningful change, and hopefully, you know, this is simply not lip service that, that we're receiving, and hopefully they really are true and uh, trying to get these issues resolved. I know a lot of celebrities have stepped up and, 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 and had made comments about what they saw on the video. I, I've got to ask this final question. One, how are the girls doing? And, and, and did somebody step in and take them on a really nice vacation? Because after what they've been through, uh, they deserve to have a smile on their face. How are they doing? I, I will say that the girls are, you know, they're day to day. You know, obviously they still have, range of emotions um you know they are therapy um right now so they're getting professional help uh you know it's i will tell you this that you know as has been described by their family um they're not the same as they were the day that they went to that park Hmm. some of their um the trauma that they've experienced definitely has some adverse effects um that could potentially be long term so again they're they're in uh, treatment right now to try to get that professional care, and uh, we just can hope hope for the best um, that that actually mitigates um, future harms. Well, we're going to keep them in prayer. Uh, and, gentlemen, we're going to keep you in prayer as you continue uh, your work on their behalf. This issue of, of systemic and institutional racism has to be dealt with on every corner of this country. And to me, uh, this was clear that that's what we were dealing with. And we certainly want to see a positive outcome as a result of uh, what we all witnessed in this video. So, gentlemen, thank you uh, for joining us. And that's Attorney Biavri Lamar and Attorney Hamid Sahir. We want to thank you again for joining us here in the pastor's office. And if we can ever be of assistance to you uh, through these airwaves, all you got to do is give us a shout. All right, thank you so much for having us and covering you. Very important issue. While you're listening to Phyllis Favor, take a minute, turn the radio up. Yeah, take a seat in the pastor's office. Right, the frequency, tune in, get up word when Reverend Jonathan makes it. Oh, yes, you should. Take a minute, turn the radio up. Son.